is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, farm insurance premiums skyrocketing due to asset price rises and weather events. And unions in DP World, they're still locked in an impasse over a pay dispute. But on top of that, DP World have ignored pleas for, for some relief from importers and exporters and they're forging ahead with what's being called exorbitant increases in terminal access charges starting today. You're spot on. It's a kick in the guts, particularly for exporters. DP Wills have have really hit the exporters hard. Um, Out of the Port of Melbourne, the increases effective today have increased overnight by 52%. We've seen a lot of commentary and critics about the union's man looking for, for 8% increases year on year for the next couple of years. Meanwhile, do people themselves are, yeah, they're unilaterally increasing a charge by 52% and it's, it's affecting uh, terminal flash You might have some thoughts on that. Send us a text 0467 922 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first to insurance and huge increases in insurance premiums are pushing farmers to consider running the gauntlet and leaving some of their machinery uninsured. Ryan Milgate is a Wimmera farmer and Grains Council with the Victorian Farmers Federation. He says insurance bills have just gone through the roof. Wow, insurance bills have been rising probably for the last three or four years uh, just well just looking at ours quickly this morning um you know we've more than doubled since sort of pre-covid levels so you know the increases have been very significant and is it twofold ryan that the value of what you're insuring particularly machinery uh is increasing a lot but then uh, aside from that the, the premiums themselves are increasing as well yeah, well, that, that's personally what we've seen from our perspective. And so, um, look, I can't really comment from the, you know, the, the risk side of why those premiums have, have gone up. But certainly in, in our situation that I think everyone knows the cost of everything's gone up and new machinery and, and the value of the machinery that you have got. And if you do have to, you know, replace it, the cost of that has, you know, increased significantly as well. So we're sort of getting a double whammy here which is not great. Ryan Milgate in the Wimmera and Victoria. Well, in New South Wales, it's a similar situation when it comes to those insurance premiums. Rebecca Reardon is a Maury farmer and vice president of the New South Wales Farmers Association. She told Lara Webster she's even had to look at her own books and weigh up just what to insure. Insurance affordability has become a major concern for farmers. I mean, the cost of Our insurance, our farm insurance, has increased about 50% in the last three years. Um, And that's on all products. We're seeing that on your infrastructure, machinery, and even on our own personal assets and home insurance. And farmers are responding in a number of ways. Some are just not insuring, um, which, you know, is a huge issue in itself in terms of, you know, their viability and sustainability because it's a risk mitigation tool for us. And a lot of farmers also are sitting down, and we will be sitting down with our insurance broker tomorrow, and actually going through our items and taking off things like old sheds that we might not want to insure anymore or um, self-insuring machinery. And we're seeing that trend across the, across the um, board in New South Wales as well. Yeah, so you've given a bit of an example there for yourself, uh, you know, sitting down, looking at maybe what you're not going to insure. What are some examples of what people might be leaving out of their insurance you mentioned their old sheds so is this you know more of the older gear rather than than the new gear 
Look, I think people are sitting down here talking to our broker and what the trend is. And he said people are sitting down and saying, what don't I need that if, if something happened to it, because I'd never be able to afford to replace it. And, and that probably comes older sheds to start with. Um, but it probably extends to anything. You know, machinery, what machinery, um, which has gone up enormously in cost, um, perhaps if something was to happen, can I do without? Um, because I just can't afford the, the total insurance bills. They're trying to reduce that total insurance bill. I mean, of course, a lot of that really expensive machinery, I suppose, like a new harvester, I would imagine when they're financed by banks, you would require insurance. So, you know, what are the steps forward here? I mean, what are some of the alternatives for people, particularly when you look at that higher end of your operation? And I think that's right. Any any new machinery you've got, the bank requires you to actually take out insurance as part of the loan. So really it's probably that older machine and the machine that's no longer on that um, has been fully paid off that is actually not being insured. But we all know that, that with the increase in machinery costs, um, if something happened and the replacement costs, they're through the roof. And that relates to sheds as well. I think silos have doubled in price in the last five to seven years. Sheds have doubled in the past couple of years. We all know machinery's gone up enormously as well. So the replacement costs are very, very expensive. Um, so it, it's opening farmers up to a lot more risk in terms of their business. But they, the affordability insurance now, is just it's just too hard. So what are the factors here? Of course, we're seeing more and more natural disasters we've just seen that in the last few years compound what are the factors here i imagine it isn't just weather so so what's the overall picture here look i i think there's a few things we need to consider and there's no doubt that you know for natural disasters insurance companies have had to put out huge outlays and they're looking to recoup their losses basically across all insurance holders but I think when it comes to natural disasters, we need to look beyond that. I mean, things like doing building approvals in flood-prone areas should, just should never be happening. Um, the fact of we've reduced our controlled burning for fuel reduction, um, which makes it easier to suppress fires, and we've reduced that over the years due to various reasons, which needs to be looked at. We need to stop the red tape. I mean, we know of one particular... Um, I've heard of one particular farmer who they increased their levy bank around their house because they'd been flooded the previous year. And next thing you know, they had someone from Sydney knocking on their door saying that they'd raised it a few centimetres too high. And they got, you know, they were having the book thrown at them. Um, you know, so rather than empowering and working with us and coming up with the practical solutions, we're, we're not actually allowing that. I, I think one of the biggest things that's contributing to also to the cost of insurance is actually the taxes. I mean, it's nonsensical that we're paying tax on insurance, yet that is actually the reality of what's happening. So um, it has a compounding effect. When we increase the premium, the tax is increasing. So it's part of why the, that we're seeing this increase that's happening, and it's very significant. New South Wales Farmers Association Vice President Rebecca Reardon speaking to Lara Webster. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales.
It's 12 minutes past 12. Well, the ongoing negotiations between DP World and the Maritime Union of Australia have failed to reach a resolution and we'll see a continuation of protected industrial action through until the 10th of February. Paul's ally is the Director of Freight and Trade Alliance and, and the Secretariat of Australian Peak Shippers Association and says this is having a devastating financial impact on exporters and importers of an estimated $84 million per week. Paul's ally says in another kick in the guts, DP World have ignored pleas for relief and are forging ahead with exorbitant increases in terminal access charges starting today on every truck, train that's delivering or collecting containers from DP World terminals. Um, we're hoping that the parties will still come together before before too long and be able to resolve that. There is some indications that there may be some outcome there, but we'll believe it when we see it. But in the meantime, um, we've got the, the, the big congestion issues, international shipping lines, um, uh, uh, what we call blank sailing or cancelling, a lot of sailings that were, were planned to come to DP World Terminals nationally. Um, other vessels that are servicing Australia are bypassing ports and and picking up cargo elsewhere and, and discharging and uh, just in total disarray. So, um, look, the sooner this can get sorted out, we can get on with some type of normality, the better. And the other thing on top of that, um, there's an additional charge that the that the company DP World is going to 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 put on uh, uh, containers. Tell us about that, and 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 the industry is not really that happy about that either. No, look, it's a, you're spot on. It's a kick in the guts, particularly for exporters. DP World have, have really hit the exporters hard. Um, out of the Port of Melbourne, the increases effective today have increased overnight by 52%. Um, 52 so, Wow. So, you know, again, um, we've seen a lot of commentary and critics about the union's demand looking for, for 8% increases year on year for the next couple of years. And I'll leave it for other commentators to, to say whether that's justified or not. But meanwhile, do people themselves, uh, yeah, they're unilaterally increasing a charge by 52%. And it's it's affecting uh, terminals nationally, less in Fremantle, because we've got a government still controlled port there in WA, and they've been able to keep a cap on these increases through the lease arrangements that they've got there with the stevedores. But in the privatised ports around the rest of the country, they've basically got a free run to do what they like. And, um, and you know, ACCC reports year on year are showing that increasingly the stevedores are making their profits primarily through charges on the land side rather than to their commercial party or their contracted party being the uh, international shipping lines. And the Productivity Commission, which is an independent body that looks at these things, has said that um, this, this, these sorts of charges that, that have been foreshadowed and now introduced are outrageous. Yeah, look, they are. And, and the, the Productivity Commission you know, put a very good report together um, uh, in December 2022 on Australia's maritime logistics system. It, it addressed a lot of um, reforms and suggestions there, but one of the key ones was around these terminal access charges. They recommended a mandatory code uh, be introduced which would be regulated with new powers to the ACCC um, to put a level of scrutiny on any land side fees charged against 
road and rail operators and, and we very much support an outcome along those lines. Now, in terms of the uh, protected action, so the union, they're asking for a pay rise. DP World, I gather, are, are not were, were up until recently offering zero pay rise. You don't know whether there's been any movement on that at all or whether the commission might be up, might, uh, Fair Work Commission might jump in and, and uh, intervene here somewhere? Look, I don't think the Fair Work Commission is going to intervene. There was an application that uh, DP World made to the Fair Work Commission, a, a 4 to 5 application uh, before Christmas, which was looking for a 90-day um, ceasefire, if you like, um, a cooling-off period on a protected industrial action. Um, but the, at the time, the Fair Work Commission looked at it and said, no, 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 um, you've just got to play the game and you've got to go in and negotiate. And they rejected that, so we had protected industrial action continue. And then, obviously, um, more recent times, uh, Minister Burke, on, upon his return from leave, met with DP World and was really quite scathing of them, suggesting just get back to the negotiation table and make it happen. Um, so I can't see the Fair Work Commission or the government intervening. Um, so hopefully the parties can come up with some resolution. Otherwise, this is just going to drag out potentially as long as June of this year, at which time then the Fair Work Commission would be forced by legislation to arbitrate. And so as a result, we're seeing we've got lamb and beef that are in containers that might have to be moved back and put on the domestic market. We've got containers of grain that are sitting there that, you know, supposed to be exported out into Asia. Uh, You know, so there's a big, big holdups there. Look, there is. You know, and the, the amount of capacity is significantly reducing, as you're suggesting, and it's limiting our access to market. Um, and those who are able to ship, uh, will, they can expect to pay higher freight rates because with a reduced capacity um, and there's still the high demand, the price will naturally go up. And we're seeing that now in freight rates. Um, so... Yeah, it's making us definitely less competitive for all products, um, you know. And again, we these terminal access charges that I talk about as well for, for commodities that are high volume and low value, like your grain, um, it's devastating impacts. So that adds an extra couple of dollars per ton for grain, and that can that can diminish any existing profits that exist in the competitive international market. Paul Zalai is the director of Freight and the Freight, Freight and Trade Alliance. It's 19 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. To Macadamia is now in the largest macadamia market and marquee marketing has been announced as a finalist for the 2024 India-Australia Trade, Business and Community Alliance Awards. The Australian macadamia industry is well represented in the excellence in trade and investment categories. Joining marquee marketing among the finalists is industry's uh, peak body, the Australian Macadamia Society. Marquee Marketing's uh, Managing Director Don Ross told Kim Honan that they hoped that within time, India takes a quarter of Australia's crop. We were one of the first you know, 12 months ago to uh, go over there and start opening up the market. Very hard to open up a new market and to get recognition of uh, the work that the marketing team has done is just uh, fantastic. Fantastic to the team. Yeah, how important is the Indian export market for the Australian macadamia industry? Of course, last year we saw such a, a drop in, in prices for, for local growers because of the oversupply. 
And so what, what we set about to do, you know, for our company, for Marquee, is to increase the demand for uh, macadamia products worldwide. And to do that, uh, we've um, obviously developed a lot of new customers, uh, which the lower prices allowed us to do a lot of new products, uh, again, you know, positioning them in the marketplace, but in particular opening up geographic markets. And India was the, the target to open up in 2023. And what's the response been from Indian consumers to the Australian product? Very favourable. Uh, they like the Australian product. They like the macadamia nuts. Uh, they're a society that uh, uses a lot of nut meats, and so that makes it a lot easier to um, open up a market by bringing in macadamia nuts, which they really haven't had much exposure to. So the acceptance has been very good. And how many tonnes of macadamias have we, or has Marquee now exported to India after your first container loads last September, October? First container load went in September. There's only been small amounts because we're still working with the Australian government on uh, improving any of the efficiencies you know, to access the trade. But I expect in 2024 it will significantly increase. By how much do you think? Very hard to tell at the moment, but uh, I think the Indian market has the potential of taking you know, 25% of the Australian uh, uh, crop in time, but that, that will take time. And has the, the ports dispute here in Australia as well as the, the Red Sea crisis had any impact on your exports to India or indeed any other country? No, it hasn't. The... Um, Brisbane port, which we mainly uh, go out of, uh, has been able to keep going by using different um, stevedoring companies. The Sydney port is, um, you know, and our product does go down to Sydney. Uh, it's not impacted to the same extent. So we haven't had a lot of issues. The Red Sea, I'm not sure whether any of our vessels have been, uh, or any of our product on vessels have um, had an issue. But in terms of getting product to the customers, we haven't had any issues. Any word yet on final payment to marquee suppliers and can they expect the, the price to, to lift above $1.70? I, I think the easiest answer is we are paying in accordance with the schedule that we gave to growers. What happens in terms of additional payments will be determined by the respective boards probably the end of March. Uh, that's the you know, time where uh, they look at all the, uh, the financial performance. And in terms of setting the price for 2024, we're at the moment uh, doing all the market research to determine just exactly where we'll pitch the Australian product in terms of price and what that will mean to the Australian grower. It'll just take a bit more time. From the research that you've done, are there any indications that the price can lift this year for growers, not just marquee suppliers, but those across the country? Well, the price dropped dramatically over the last couple of years. You know, that's a lot of the farmers have heard they're, they're operating below their uh, cost of production. So we will be doing everything to help our, our shareholders, our farmers and the industry because the, the industry needs to get those prices up. And given so many farmers were experiencing that uh, the low prices, you know, being paid um, less than the cost of production, did Marquis see many suppliers leave the industry? Um, no, we haven't. They may not have... Uh, produced everything that they had in the past because a lot of the farmers with their last round of harvesting uh, didn't pick up because it just saved costs. It really is the cost benefit, how much is on the ground and what's the cost of picking it up. Whereas in normal seasons, they just pick it up and put it in as part of their total crop. But at this stage, we haven't seen a lot of people um, leave the industry because of the prices. 
Don Ross is the Managing Director of Marquee Marketing. The 2024 India-Australian Trade Business and Community Alliance Awards will be announced on the 15th of August in Canberra. It's 24 minutes past 12. Well, for many farmers, the idea of virtual fencing has been long been a holy grail. The possibility of drawing fence lines on a smartphone could help farmers not only save on infrastructure and labour costs, but also better use their pastures. Virtual fencing is currently banned in New South Wales, but there's growing momentum amongst farmers and MPs to see that overturned. Josh Becker has this report. Bega Valley dairy farmer Phil Ryan is using ag tech on his farm. He's using wearable technology on his cows and he's interested in the possibility of virtual fencing. I've got collars on my cows now, not for electric fencing purposes, but the equivalent virtually of a Fitbit type device for a cow, which gives me real time wireless information on that cow's activity and health and that helps me with breeding decisions and and joinings and even with health alerts for for animals that might be sick that I can go and check on. Virtual fencing is the containment of animals without fixed fences, which is done by providing signals to the animals, including an audio cue, which tells the animal it's approaching the invisible boundary. This is then paired with an electric shock if the animal continues to go forward. I think it's a really exciting opportunity for the dairy industry in particular, with our quieter cows that are used to strip grazing and, and temporary fencing, moving around twice a day, to and from the dairy shed and has a a labour requirement for somebody to actually go and get those cows twice a day. I I think that there's a real potential there for labour saving and time efficiencies and and probably better pasture utilisation and and possibly even better animal welfare outcomes. Chair of the New South Wales Farmers Dairy Committee, Phil Ryan, understands the animal welfare concerns but believes dairy cows are very trainable. The only way this works for farmers if it also works for cows. So I would share some of that concern and yet there are commercial applications with, I believe I'm correct in saying, hundreds of thousands of cows wearing these collars now and that's a pretty solid base of data for seeing how they work in practice. If we look at conventional fencing with electric fences or barbed wire and those sorts of things, then I don't think that there's any greater risk and impact. I would suggest a lower risk of animals having a problem. Independent member for Orange Phil Donato has tabled a notice of motion to the New South Wales Parliament last year which aimed at amending the Act which currently restricts the use of virtual fencing in the state due to those animal welfare concerns. It's expected to be debated in February and Mr Donato is confident it will garner enough support. And, and I'm of the view that this is a potential opportunity uh, for uh, New South Wales to, to amend legislation to ensure that virtual fencing is legal, that farmers here in New South Wales are able to remain competitive with their other states throughout uh, throughout Australia where virtual fencing is legal because, uh, like I said, there's a benefits including uh, things like uh, easy, ease of rotational grazing of stock, uh, tracking livestock, checking on the condition and, and, and uh, health of animals, uh, it saves on the cost of fencing, which is a huge thing for uh, for farmers as well, especially internal fencing on on, on large farms. Uh, we all know that the price of fencing is quite 
expensive and it goes up uh, almost annually. So uh, that's just a number of uh, just a few things. There are a number of other factors which uh, certainly make it, uh, uh, in my opinion, uh, beneficial for farming and the ag sector that we remain, I guess, uh, up to date with technology and remain competitive and provide our farmers here in New South Wales this opportunity to be able to embrace this technology and obtain the benefits from virtual fencing that it would provide them. The RSPCA declined an interview, but in a statement, a spokesperson said the RSPCA is opposed to the use of electronically activated devices that deliver an electric shock to animals, as these are aversive. And while virtual fencing remains illegal in New South Wales, in New Zealand, more than 150,000 cows are using virtual fencing collars, and in Tasmania, around 20,000 cows, around 11% of the total herd. Caroline Lee, Senior Principal Research Scientist at CSIRO, says the welfare impacts are minimal. The key principles, I think, around animals learning how to interact with virtual fencing is that they need to have um, a predictable and a controllable interaction with the fence so that they understand what they need to do to avoid receiving an electric shock. The research that you know ourselves and others have done has shown that after around, on average, three interactions with the virtual boundary, we are seeing that animals learn to avoid receiving the electric shock and they respond to the audio cue alone. I imagine a key question from farmers is, is it safe and is it okay to use on animals? What's your view? Um, well, as I said, the research that we've done and, and others have done to date does show that the welfare impacts of virtual fencing are minimal um, when it has these two important components. We have done studies where we've compared, compared a conventional electric fence sorry, with a virtual fence and we have found that there weren't differences in any of the welfare measures that we took. And these were things like stress hormone levels and behavioural patterns. So in that context, it seems to be okay from a welfare perspective. However, this study was over four weeks and as far as I know, there hasn't been any really long-term studies of the welfare impacts of virtual fencing. So I would say that that's a knowledge gap that probably needs to be investigated to ensure that welfare is acceptable over longer periods of time. Caroline Lee is a senior principal research scientist at CSIRO, ending that report from Josh Becker and Tim Fuchs. Virtual fencing there, the holy grail. Uh, we've also got a text in from someone who's saying uh, the idea about uh, virtual fencing, would it allow native animals more safe passage? And uh, this is from Greg at Ningen who says uh, the dreadful exclusion fences popping up everywhere are causing all types of problems for biodiversity. So... Uh, as, uh, he says that's a bit of an issue there. And um, Brad at Maxville says uh, all the extra costs in freight is exposing a system that has not re ever really worked without being propped up. Uh, and he says that uh, things are getting more expensive on the global market. All that seems to be doing is driving up the costs and um, farmers are, uh, are footing the bill in many of those cases. And he says uh, that's uh, certainly uh, not, uh, not, not fair for the farm sector as well. And uh, also uh, talking about uh, market information, uh, give you some details about our market coverage. There's been uh, some changes this year. We've added reports on the country. You might have noticed from the uh, Tamworth store sale once in, once in a fortnight and a couple of cattle sales at Singleton and Armadale. Uh, but we're no longer repeating market reports the morning after. So we'll still have reports of some of the smaller markets in the early morning reports, rural reports, such as Lismore, Grafton and Maitland. Uh, those sales 
Mail, so people in those areas will be able to continue to hear what's happening locally. But if you've missed the uh, Country Hour market information, you can still catch up anytime by searching for that program online and the ABC Listen app. So uh, listen back to the Country Hour and you can hear those markets back on the Country Hour uh, that have been uh, played earlier in the day. Or listen to your heart's content to the Country Hour. Yeah, I mean, I know that Adam's story is always... You're always listening to the Country Hour app. Am I cut out of the repeat? (laughs) (laughs) Depends what you say. Oh, true. No, no, we don't do that. No, we don't have any censorship of the uh, Country Hour news segment. Lucky for me. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, All right, we've got some breaking news. Uh, The uh, uh, son of the former Senator and Premier Christina Keneally has escaped a jail sentence for fabricating evidence that actually put a man behind bars. Uh, he accused the man of making a threatening phone call to police uh, in February 2021. Uh, but Daniel Keneally has been handed a 15-month uh, intensive corrections order requiring him, to, requiring him to serve 200 hours of community service. Uh, the former New South Wales Treasurer and Labor MP Michael Egan is being remembered uh, today. He was uh, the Treasurer in Bob Carr's Labor government, a role he held for almost a decade until January 2005. He's died after a long illness at the age of 75. Uh, one of the stories we're following today is a school uh, out in Broken Hill that uh, now, now has to relocate. Uh, for the start of term one, um, they found mould in uh, multiple buildings earlier this month, and it is completely unsafe for the, anyone to be in there. Uh, so students are going to be sent to three other local schools from next week, uh, depending on their year level. That's mm. a bit of a disruption for the first term. Yeah. Um, well, just as well, it's the first term and not during the exams. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, like COVID. <laughs> and mould, so uh, yeah. a lot of water around the place. Yeah, or an old, a, you'd yeah, think out there. Had, that's, well, they have had a lot of flooding out there yeah. in recent years, and mm. so maybe that's the cause for it, and it just hasn't sort of drained away and yeah. caused mould. And I know there was... Probably a timely reminder for everyone to have a check around the house, given yeah. how much rain we have had. That'd be true, actually, yeah. yes. And uh, also, because I remember there was... Similar issue at uh, We War a few years ago. I think it was they had mould there and they had mm. to relocate their kids from the school for a while while they fixed that up too. Yeah. I think they actually built a new school for that oh, okay. as well. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah once it gets in, there's sometimes. Oh, you, just, impos- yeah, yeah, nearly impossible to get it out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the organisers of the uh, this was this controversial music festival that was going to be held in Sydney on Anzac Day at the uh, Domain. I think it was uh, Alice Cooper. Uh, I think Deep Purple and Blondie. All the, all the favourites. It was the, it was the equivalent of my favorites. parents going to see Sinatra, Liza Minnelli and, <laughs> right. um, <laughs> and Dino. Yeah, all, all on the one bill. That's Which right. I went and saw, actually. Yeah. I think I've told you that story. Oh, there. Um, Sinatra that would, that would and Minnelli been, and uh, it was Sammy Davis, not Dino. That would have been fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was a young fogey <laughs> off to see Sinatra at <laughs> <laughs> age 21. Oh, uh, I would have loved to have seen Sinatra. Yeah. And Dean Martin. Yeah. yeah. Oh, would've, Dino yeah. would have been great. Hilarious. Yeah. yeah. The Rat Pack. Yeah. In Las Vegas. Oh, imagine being... In between the cards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
with the drinks. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yep. That's right. Uh, and the uh, US authorities have confirmed uh, their audit of uh, Boeing uh, on their 737 MAX aircraft is now going to look at all elements of the com- uh, company's uh, production. Uh, so it's also going to examine how Boeing transfers unfinished work from suppliers to its production lines. Uh, the initial audit announced in January uh, was announced in January when it grounded all uh, MAX 9 planes after the mid-air cabin panel blew out. So it's now going to look at all aspects of their manufacturing. Mm. So they could be a bit disruptive to operations not there. Just, uh, not just the tightening of the bolts, eh? Not just the bolts, mm. yeah. But that concert, they moved it to Homebush. Oh, sorry, now. yeah, that was is the that point right? of the story. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, they, yeah, they <laughs> moved it to Homebush because it. they considered domain yeah, to be an, an, yeah, an well, inappropriate place. Yeah, well, you've got place. the march. And, yeah, 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 that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and he, re- the the premier, just outright refused to allow it to be held there. So it's now moving to the uh, Sydney uh, Olympic Park. Mm. If you uh, wish to partake. Yes, because you need to have the domain free for two up. Of course. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Naturally. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise exactly. it'd be un Australian. <laughs> Just don't don't mess oh, with Alice the Alice Cooper. Yeah. yeah. School's back for summer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, thanks for that. Yeah, all right. <laughs> it's twenty three minutes to one. You'll be back at one o'clock. I will. Yeah. And uh, it's time to find out what's happening with the weather details. Neil Fraser at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Yeah, hello, Michael. So, fairly warm conditions around the state. Not m- many showers have sort of moved out now? No, or? no it, it's fairly benign for yep. the next uh, few days. Ridge of high pressure over us, so very few showers. In fact, virtually nothing now. So, the heat, currently it's going to get quite hot in the north of the state in the next couple of days, touching 40 or so. But then it looks like that heat will spread further afield, especially on Sunday. So, much of the state will be uh, under uh, heat wave conditions with temperatures in uh, the 40s across a large swathe, including some parts of the coast, the Hunter and Mid-North Coast, probably Illawarra Coast as well affected. There is some potential for some activity coming in from the ex-tropical cyclone Curialy. It's currently over the Gulf of Carpentaria. Looks like it's going to make its way through inland Queensland over the coming days and by Monday probably start to affect the northwest of New South Wales. So and we should see some showers and thunderstorms spreading across a fairly large area of the west and into the southeast on Monday, and even on Sunday, potentially a couple of showers and thunderstorms building up. But the general trend is for it to increase Monday and Tuesday, extending down to the southeast. Up in the far northwest on Monday, potentially some severe thunderstorms as well, and it could be some heavy falls in that. So rainfall of the order of 20 to 50 millimetres can't be ruled out for that upper western area on Monday. As it comes further southeast on Tuesday, probably not as high rainfall amounts, but still good average of 10 to 20 millimetres from some of those showers and thunderstorms with some locally higher falls. Then from Wednesday onwards, it contracts to the coast and ranges with uh, further showers and thunderstorms, generally most of the thunderstorms in the northeast from Wednesday. So all in all, fairly benign the next few days, but then it starts to build up and get that tropical moisture coming back again. More than likely will be a heat wave warning issued over the uh, next few days, mainly affecting the inland parts, but as I said, yeah, some of the coastal areas could be affected as well. So when those the, the main areas that might get um, the severe rainfall or uh, some storms, are we talking sort of Moree and that sort of area, or where, yes. where are we well, talking? Yeah, well, Moree may not get as much. It's more f- uh, west from Moree, mm. so up around the upper west on Monday. And it looks like the, the bulk of it is going to slip to the southeast, so more around the central tablelands, southern areas. 
and then, as I said, it contracts to the coast and ranges on the Wednesday. So Maori might be in a little bit of a gap there, but certainly they'll get something out of this, especially if they get the odd thunderstorm or two over the, from Tuesday onwards. So if you're under the storm, you might get, you know, 50 millimetres in a hurry or you, you might miss yes. it completely. That's right. And so the average, it's a bit silly talking about averages in some cases. Yeah, that's right. As, as people out there know. Yeah, average yeah, between zero and 50 and get, someone gets 50 and yeah. someone gets zero. That's right. So yeah, the average is 25, right. yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's quite, uh, quite a bizarre way of looking at it. But that's the nature of these storms, isn't it? Certainly is. Mm. Yeah, it's not widespread rainfall, which uh, we prefer, I guess. But Makes it easier for you. It certainly does. Yeah, we can use the R word. <laughs> That's right. That's you know, right. I like the R word. But yes. No. I know. Yes. Yeah. I know. You like. I know you like using <laughs> the R word. All right. Uh, and uh, in terms of after this event, is it going to heat up again, or what's in store? Yes. Well, we, we, there's some relief for the coast as another suddenly pushes through uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday, but the heat will remain in the northern uh, inland areas. But some relief in the south as well. So. The heat for, if you're in the Riverina and so forth, the hottest day is going to be Sunday and then it gets back to the low to mid-30s from from Monday onwards. Neil, thanks for that. Okay, thanks, Michael. Neil Fraser at the Bureau there. It's 19 minutes to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, Australia's agricultural sector, they're moving confidently into 2024. That's the positive outlook from Rabobank in its newly released annual outlook. Better than expected seasonal conditions and lower input costs have helped set up the sector for a strong year. Uh, Agri-commodity prices are well down on the highs we had seen in the previous two years, but uh, the bank is forecasting continued positive farm margins in some key agricultural sectors in 2024. There's some global economic headwinds, however, they're set to uh, continue. That's according to General Manager of Australia and New Zealand Rabo Research, Stefan Vogel. He says that uh, there's a pretty confident outlook and uh, El Nino didn't turn out to be as bad as feared with significant uh, rainfall recently received across many farming areas, except with the possible exception of WA. He says grain farmers are set to be a bit more optimistic and beef and sheep producers. The outlook for uh, farm-grown feed in the first half of this year is uh, overall promising and it's allowing them to hold on to more of their livestock. Um, absolutely. So we are looking into 2024 and actually feel that farmers can confidently now walk into that year. I think the rains um, not only prove that it can rain during El Nino times, but it also helps, especially on the livestock farming side, to get a bit more confidence into those markets again, uh, that we have hopefully enough feed supplies. But as you said, um, we see several of the markets maybe still struggling a bit with the lower prices. So overall, if we're looking at our agri-commodity index across many of the commodities, we see it better than last year. Um, It's moving actually, in our view, close to what a combination of wheat and all the other grains, plus beef and sheep and so on. If you take all these prices, you build an index, we see that moving slightly back to that five-year average level, so better than last year but clearly not anywhere close to those records as we had two years ago, three years ago. The one that has struggled quite a bit with low prices was on the sheep side, was on the beef side. Um, For both of them, we see prices recovering a bit further here going forward, which is good news, Um, but the recovery doesn't bring us anywhere back to the record prices we had in the past because both of those markets, in our view, are still working with rather large volumes getting to the slaughter market 
Um, we have record inventory still on the sheep side, and they will produce quite a bit of extra lamb still for the market. And the same on the beef side, there's still a large volume uh, getting into the meat market. We need to export a lot of that. And if you think about a global economic scenario that is not horrible compared to last year, but compared to where we normally would be with a global economic outlook, um, it is not anywhere as pleasant. We see several in, uh, economies um, not in a recession, but at least not very far off from it. So the consumer demand in those regions is still not as strong as we need it. And especially for the red meat sector, that often means they are facing a little bit of a tougher time because uh, if you go to the supermarket and you see that a chicken is cheaper or a pork is cheaper than the red meat on the beef or sheep side, um, consumers are making a bit of a choice, be it in Asia or be it in, in other parts rather congested. The only one that gives us real good hopes is the U.S. market. We still see very good demand coming from the U.S. market. That was already the case last year, and that should hopefully help us also this year. They have not built their cattle herd back to the levels where they needed to be. Record high prices convince a few people to actually uh, not rebuild as quickly, but rather take a few more cows to slaughter and cash in on that. So the U.S. market might be a support, but the Asian market is a little bit of a demand uh, issue for us. Yeah, there's talk about a bit of a slowdown in China that might impact us not just in the um, in the livestock markets, but elsewhere too. Yeah, clearly, if you look at China and, well, uh, how can you forecast the number the government usually in China? Yeah, they don't tell you anything, do they? No. <laughs> exactly. The government tells you in China what the GDP is, and then that's what it is. But clearly, we see also in China the consumption still a bit, little bit struggling, the economy not going as hard as it could. So usually you would say, oh, uh, the country makes close to a double-digit GDP level. Well, we are in the 5% range, and that is just not uh, where China usually should be. So especially for products, let's say, on, on the dairy side, that can be an issue, not so much for Australia. Yes, we're exporting a few volumes there, but for New Zealand, it's even a bigger issue. But a lot of the products that go into China even on the meat side, uh, even on the soybean side, it's not going as strong as we've seen that in the past. So China is a bit of a concern, clearly. Um, the good news, however, if we're thinking about dairy here locally, for example, it is still a very good market. Um, prices last year were very high. Um, it's a little bit the opposite of what the livestock sector has shown. So the issue in, in 24, when we look at dairy, is on the one side, given we have very attractive prices, it pulls quite a bit of imports in, imports of cheese, imports of other dairy products that's competing. We see that continuing. On the other side, we still see that farm gate prices of milk will be good, probably not as strong as last year, but still rather good compared to history. We still expect that farm margins for dairy will be healthy in Australia this year. Um, despite maybe slightly lower dairy prices. And talking about the rain, you were talking about it earlier, and that's uh, good. Hopefully we'll get a good autumn break and uh, the grain growers' oil seed production will increase. But in itself, that can be an issue in terms of pricing and uh, if there, if we do get big crops. Yes, absolutely. And clearly it's not only about us having big No, it's elsewhere around the world, lots of, lots of crops in Russia. Yep. Exactly. So if we're looking at that picture, first of all, um, the rains, as, as beneficial they might have been for some of the livestock farmers and, and even some of the summer croppers, so yes, uh, cotton, for example, or sugar, even so there was a bit of flooding in sugar. Overall, those crops probably still got rather good rains. There's nothing on the field right now. There's no wheat, no barley, no canola out there that is benefiting from it, but you get a bit of moisture in the ground, which may or may not disappear quickly depending on how it hot it gets. But that is already a good start. I think it brings the confidence back in that we're going to see farmers planting 
um, and El Nino, as it seems, might also taper off, um, depending on which model you look at. It probably into our autumn disappears. Um, some already want to call it La Nina again, and that was La Nina brings a lot of rain. So with that, let's see how that goes. But for now, I think also the cropping farmers are looking more happily into the uh, next couple of months. The only area that hasn't gotten much rain is the, the whole Western Australian side of the country. But if you're going south and, and east coast, um, lots of rain in those areas bring benefits. If we get a big crop here in Australia, First of all, I think it's on the cards that we can get a better crop than last year. And, and the last crop we just harvested was actually close to the five-year average. It looked kind of tiny compared to these record crops we brought in the years before. But actually, volume-wise, it was not a bad crop. Um, it was actually still a pretty decent crop if you compare it to a 10-year, 15-year uh, average. Just compared to the record crops, it wasn't good. But price-wise, we have seen prices coming down and has limited uh, drivers are coming from us here. It's really around the big global markets. We see South America, a recovery in Argentina with a very good wheat crop, a good corn crop coming there. We see in Brazil that the weather is not as great as last year, but it isn't a massive problem. They're still going to have volumes. The U.S. crop was bigger than they harvested in October. And looking next year, I think even so the U.S. farming margins are shrinking quite a bit. We still think that the farmers in the U.S. will go hard. And it's all about for us here on the on the wheat and barley side around what Russia does. And Russia had two very good crops in a row. There is no reason to assume that the next crop will not be anywhere close to those very good levels once again for now. They're in the middle of winter. A lot can happen to their crops. But for now, the area is big. The exports out of Russia are still flowing very nice despite the war going on. Ukraine's exports in December were extremely strong, one of the strongest levels we've seen since the war started. There were just no bad news in the world market, and with that, um, prices came down every month a little bit further, a little bit further. Um, it's hard to see that immediately stopping, but we also don't feel that the global price needs to drop massively more from where we are today. Stephen Vogel, Head of Research at Rabobank. Well, there's been a lot of talk about price gouging at the supermarket and farmers are pointing to a mandatory code of conduct as a possible solution. It seems to have helped farmers to get a better return for milk in the dairy industry and fruit and vegetable growers have reportedly benefited from a mandatory code for horticulture as well. Shane, Sean McInerney is a wholesaler at the Sydney markets and he buys and sells produce from up and down the East Coast. He told David Clawton the code has improved transparency of pricing in the markets. Yeah, there's full transparency for the whole code. When you're trading on a product on a daily basis and you're in contact with your suppliers on a daily basis and they make the decision of whether they're going to Brisbane market, Sydney market, Melbourne market. So they know in advance what you're prepared to pay, but do they also know, you know, what you've on sold it for and how much money you've made? Sure. Right. So that's something that's got to be published and, and be transparent and visible. What about the other things that the code requires you to do? Because I'm sure growers and suppliers would, would have, there'd be issues around rejection of produce. You know, that's the same thing we hear about in the supermarkets, that you've got specifications, haven't you, about what you need for your business. So does, is that a, a point of conflict from time to time because you've had to reject something? Very, very seldom. We know what our suppliers are doing. They know what they're doing. If they've got a problem, they let us know. It's very, very, very rarely that happens. In your view, is that code working effectively to protect you and, and to protect your suppliers? Overall, it is. Uh, it is a little cumbersome. I think uh, a large majority of the product grown in Australia goes 
directly to supermarkets isn't covered by a code. That's because they're buying directly, yeah? It's not going through, they're not going through the markets at all? No. And what are your suppliers saying about the relationships they've got with, with supermarkets? Um, the margins are pretty lean. They'd like to see, see what sort of regulations around that. Well, they're, they're looking at that now, aren't they? There's an ACCC inquiry. There's a, a couple of inquiries in different parliaments at the moment trying to understand who's making money and what relationships are like with the supermarkets. Under the, the mandatory code for Hort, there have been reports of, uh, of wholesalers incorrectly reporting prices in their statements to growers. So the, it, there are issues everywhere, I think it'd be fair to say. It would be like, you know, point something percent, mate. Seriously, it would be. Very few breaches, as far as you're aware. Yeah, absolutely. What's your sense of uh, what growers or suppliers are getting? Is it is it better through the Sydney markets than they would be getting supplying direct to the supermarkets? <laughs> I just think they have, better, they have better transparency, a better vision, and probably a better understanding. Um, as far as the amount of money, so I don't think it's really changed that much, because the... The professional growers, you know, they might have two or three uh, wholesalers in three or four different markets, and they're not going to send somebody who's selling in ten bucks tomorrow when someone else is selling in fifteen. And they'd make those decisions on a daily basis, whereas if they have an agreement with the supermarkets, they'd just be locked into something for for the season or for the week, for, for the, the week, week. Or, for, or for or for a, a ten day program or something. Maybe some of the more stable lines might be longer term agreements. Yeah, like a watermelon or a pumpkin or something with some of those lines might be a, a longer term agreement. Now, if, if there's been a, a mandatory code in horticulture for five, what is it now, seven, six years, are we seeing a movement back to the central markets rather than are people dealing direct with the supermarkets? Because as you, if you, according to what you're telling me, that, that they, do, they can do better in the central market system. I think uh, I'd, I'd like to see that... More, more, Obviously, I'm a wholesaler in the central market, so I'd like to see more product to go through the central marketing system. It's the fairest and quickest way to keep your product onto a shelf. There's Sean McInerney from Fresh Fellows, a fruit and veg wholesaler at the Sydney markets. The ACCC has begun its inquiry into supermarket pricing. Well, before we go to markets, after two years of closure, the Moree Plains Shire Council is seeking expressions of interest to lease or purchase the local livestock selling centre. The facility was shut down in February 2022 after it was deemed unsafe and in a state of disrepair. Our council has said that they will now explore alternative uses for the site. Mayor Mark Johnson spoke more about this with James Paris about the decision. Uh, the years have gone on, those costs have escalated and to bring that up to um, an operational facility uh, would be significant, significantly more than what we've allocated. And James, that industry's changed now where we're seeing a lot more of those um, livestock being sold online and now going to other centres as well. So the, uh, the facility was built in the 70s for up to um, 10,000 head and you know I think when they closed we were getting a few hundred heads. So that industry's changed. Council feels that it would be better for us not to operate it um, ourselves and we're looking for those expressions of interest that may be able to resurrect that site um, for, to a commercial sale yard or some alternate use. Um, there has been some concern expressed from local agents that the site could be leased or even sold for a different purpose. What's the likelihood of that? Uh, look, James, we don't know and I guess that's the purpose of the expression of interest that we're just seeing what is out there. 
Or playing Shire Council Mayor Mark Johnson. Let's go to markets. To Wagga Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. A substantial increase in lamb numbers this week with 53,000 lambs and 27,000 sheep. The market showed resilience and even recorded slight gains in the extra heavy lamb classes. The overall quality was good, bolstered by significant presence of grain-assisted lambs. Buyers showed a preference for well-covered lambs, offering premiums, while leaner types requiring more finished face discounts. Trade lambs experienced a modern decline of four to ten dollars selling within a range of 130 to 170 averaging around 660 cents a kilogram carcass weight heavy lambs weighing 26 to 30 remained unchanged priced between 184 and 215 the category of lambs over 30 kilos gained a few dollars with prices ranging from 208 to 268 averaging 740 cents a kilogram carcass weight store lamb prices saw a modest easing of anywhere from 4 to 14 as prices did fluctuate greatly Lately, they ranged from 69 to 129, and lambs intended for feeding on peaked at 153. Several sheep were sold early in the sale, with trade mutton prices ranging from 62 to 88, and heavy mutton from 105 to 120. Leanne Dax for MLA. Dubbo Cattle. Numbers lifted by 1,100 for a yarding of 4,430. It was a mixed yarding with large numbers of yearlings along with good numbers of ground cattle. All the usual buyers were operating along with, once again, a strong influence from Queensland buyers on the cattle to suit the feeders and backgrounders. Young cattle of the trade were 20 cents dearer with prime vealers selling to 348. Prime yearlings sold from 274 to 340. Feeder steers and heifers were 15 to 30 cents dearer. With the feeder steers selling from 317 to 399, while feeder heifers sold from 292 to 360. Young cattle of the restockers and backgrounders were also considerably dearer. With the young steers selling to 424, and the young heifers 395. Ground steers and heifers were 13 cents dearer with the prime ground steers selling from 288 to 318, while the prime ground heifers sold to 314. Secondary cows were firm, while prime heavyweights were 12 cents dearer. Two and three score cows sold from 105 to 264, while prime heavyweights sold from 250 to 295 cents for sea mussel charolais. Heavy bulls sold to 260. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. To Yas Cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers increased to 960 and the quality improved. There was more weight in most of the cattle with only a few pens under 400 kilos. The market was strong with restockers keen on the lighter weights and feeders and processors were after numbers. The market was dearer. Wiener steers sold to 4.35 and heifers 3.19. Medium weight feeder steers jumped 40 cents, most 3.20 to 3.98. Similar weights to restock reached 4.18. Heavy feeders averaged 3.28 after reaching 3.51. Medium weight feeder heifers lifted 17, 2.76 to 3.35. Heavy weights 2.97 to 3.18. Trade cattle range between 300 and 3.34. The ground steers lifted 20 cents, 2.90 to 3.18. Heavy heifers jumped 7, 2.78 to 2. 314. Heavy cows were 10 cents stronger, 272 to 294. The leaner two scores jumped 20 cents, 245 to 265. This has been Grown Richard. Armadale Cattle. 
Good afternoon. In a show of how high demand is, the largest gallery of buyers stood in front of the largest offering for several years where 1,980 cattle were penned. A very good quality penning of feeders and export cattle. Market trends for those feeders and restocker cattle were significantly dearer, with weaner steers reaching 461 cents a kilo, heifers to 376, medium weight yielding feeder steers 280 to 420, with heavyweights to 408 cents. Heifer yearlings over 330 kilos to feed reached 353 cents. Heavy grown steers to process sold from 306 to 324 with feeders over 500 kilos reaching 354 cents heavy cows slightly dearer three and four scores 248 to 281 while bulls over 600 kilos reach 312 cents a kilo james armitage in armadale for mla news time